Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on the perspectives of community-based organizations on how trial sponsors can improve their clinical research initiatives from the 2023 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Conference. For more information on the Patients as Partners Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit patientsaspartnersconference.com or theconferenceforum.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Thank you, everyone. Um, last session, so I'm going to try and keep this as lively as possible. Um, it's a real honor for me to put this panel together. Um, I've always been talking about the intersectionality around diversity and inclusion. Um, and so thank you to Valerie and Kate for, for giving us this opportunity to put this panel together, to broaden uh, that conversation. And uh, I think Sarah Krug this morning and Tina, uh, this all sort of started from a conversation we had about a year ago about diversifying the diversity story. Um, and really today is, is the start of that long, long journey. So um, let's start by doing a round of introductions. Um, so if you could, um, Cal, should we start with you, if you don't mind? Sure, uh, I'm Cal Roberts. I'm president and CEO of Lighthouse Guild. And what we do is we care for people who are blind and visually impaired. So a little bit about my history. For the first 25 years, I was a practicing eye surgeon at Weill Cornell in New York City, then spent 10 years in the pharmaceutical industry as, as the chief medical officer of a major pharmaceutical company, and now here on the patient side. So I'm happy to add perspective, both as a uh, pharmaceutical company, as a clinical provider, and now, of course, as an advocate for people who are blind. Hi, everyone. My name is Tina Swani Ompakash. I think you all know me by now from a whole day of moderation, but it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Ash, for moderating. Thank you. Hello. My name is Perla Nunez. I'm a proud Latina. Um, so my uh, background is in research. I started off my career in preclinical research at Hoffman Roche in Nutley, New Jersey, and then at, at the Canham Research Center in Charlotte. And then I went to work for Duke University in community outreach, uh, community-engaged research. And I have a love for people. And I was very passionate about getting the Latino community involved in research, letting them know about what their rights were, what the facts were, um, you know, why we need to consider participating in clinical trials. So I'm a huge advocate for making sure that people know what clinical research is about, and then letting them make that decision about whether to participate or not. But let's equip people with the proper information in a way that they understand it, right? So yeah, that's why I'm here today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Angie Fidelli. I'm the Director of Operations for Clinical Programs and Autism Speaks. Um, I'm really excited to be here to represent the autism community. We always are looking at improving our population to make sure we have a diverse population. And so we face a lot of similar struggles you all face with um, clinical trials. And so one of my main jobs is to oversee our autism care network. We're the first learning health network of its kind for autism. And um, we previously were a full research network, so we had a registry database of over 7,000 patients. 
And now we're moving into the Learning Health Network world. Clinical trials and research is still a strong arm of ours, um, even though we're under a Learning Health Network model. So we've continued to expand in our research um, following from transitioning from a research network. So hopefully I have a lot of great things to share and I look forward to learning from you all as well. Hi everybody, my name is Shauna Whistington and um, I'm the manager of community engagement with ASH Research Collaborative. And uh, we're an organization that uh, started just a few years ago under the umbrella of the American Society of Hematology. I'm um, just making sure that we include people, a community of people who are living with rare hematologic diseases in everything that we do. Um, and so I, I want to first thank Patients as Partners for, for inviting me to be a part of this and this amazing panel. Um, and I just also wanted to thank everyone, the brave people who agreed to just to be a part of clinical research because without them, there would be no us. And so I just wanted to thank them. But I'm also here um, um, under the guise of an advocate and someone who is a member of the sickle cell disease community. And next month, I will be celebrating my 13th year of being cured of the physical symptoms of sickle cell disease. And that is the community that I serve. And so I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Um, and there is someone just floating on the screen above us, and that's Scout. Uh, fortunately, uh, got COVID, but you know, COVID is still a thing, guys. Um, and yeah, so Scout, do you mind introducing yourself? Hold on, Scout. You're on mute, I think. Or is it, is it us? Can't hear you at the moment. Testing. Can you hear me now? We can hear you. OK, great. Hi, everybody. Sorry, I just love the taste of Paxlovid so much. I had to put that first today. Um, my name is Scout, or Dr. Scout, depending on how formal we're being. Um, I am a researcher, but I'm also the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. My pronouns are they, he. I'm trans and non-binary. We work a lot to educate our own communities about how cancer disproportionately affects us, advocate within the mainstream cancer community to do a better job of engaging us in things such as clinical trials, and then lots and lots of training of providers because there's certainly a mushrooming demand these days for people to get better skills to serve our communities. So with that, I look forward to participating. Thank you very much, Scout. And we'll continue with you. And I think what we want to do is try and break down some of those barriers and myths around and working with community-based organizations. Um, so would you mind just telling us uh, some of the biggest challenges you, f you face, you see, and that you want overcoming? I feel like one of the biggest things is that there is just a big gap in understanding and knowledge between how my communities perceive the idea of engaging with any kind of, honestly, with any kind of clinician. Most of us have either a history of our own personal negative experiences, or else we know other people who've had a history of negative experiences. And most of us are in an environment where, honestly, the clinical world, including the research world, seems to be largely mute about us. So we don't understand the places where we're welcoming. And the gap is really that the people on the other side of the equation presume that, oh, if you're treating everybody the same or something like that, that maybe it's gonna be okay. But on the other hand, if you start to flip the lens and look at it from our perspective, 
you know, if you have a history of all these negative experiences, then we're looking for places, we're always looking for places that are safer to land, safer to be, safer to exist. But unfortunately, if all of these research studies don't say anything about whether we're welcome, if all of these, you know, different clinical environments don't say anything about whether we're welcoming, they're not treating everybody the same. They're actually perpetuating the history of discrimination and disparities against not just my very diverse population, but all of these other underserved populations as well. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunately true when I use the example kind of frequently that I am much more likely to see a sign saying that I and people like me are welcome at a local bakery than I am at any one of these medical offices and or clinical trial sites that, you know, especially in the Northeast, are all around me right now. So, you know, that gives me greater access to carbohydrates, but that doesn't do anything to counter these decades and decades of discrimination against our population in just accessing medical care, much less the additional care you might go through if you're trying to engage with a clinical trial. No, thank you very much, Scout. We'll go into a little bit deeper into those challenges in a moment. Um, so, Shauna, from your perspective, um, what can we do to break down those barriers to, to, to clinical research? Um, I would start with just uh, being intentional, genuine uh, in approaching the community um, that, you, that you're serving. Um, but then I'd also say that one of the, the barriers that we're facing one of the barriers that um, we're facing at ASH Research Collaborative is just addressing the fundamental needs of the sickle cell disease community. It's a, it's a disease that affects one's entire life. And so when we sit people down to talk about the importance of clinical research and the, the importance of diverse representation of clinical research within the sickle cell disease community, they're like, okay, that's great, but I need a right to the doctor. That's awesome, but I need to feed my family, you know? And so they're like, so if we help you, how are you going to assist us? We're happy to be here. So what, we've, what we are, are trying to do now is to make sure that we address the, the very, very important fact that successful clinical research translates into better standard of care for people living with sickle cell disease, and then they're, they're enthusiastic about participating because they, you know, the altruism is there, but they're facing all of these barriers, and they're aware that their participation has the ability to change the landscape of this very difficult disease. Thank you very much. And um, Angie, we'll come to you. So I'm very interested in how we, as an industry, can really engage people of, um, you know, who lived experience with autism and get them into research. And what are your experiences there? Yeah, so we've been um, really successful, thankfully, of, of getting um, engagement from a lot of families in research. However, we still struggle with making sure that's a diverse population. So um, Caucasian, we, I think we're 75% ca Caucasian across our data set. Um, for us, the biggest fear is trust. 
So you really have to work with the families on educating them the importance of this research. Why are we doing this? What's in it for them? How are they going to benefit? Um, compensation for our families. So we've learned across our network that we involve our, we usually work with our parent partners because our population, we work with a pediatric population. And so our parent partners are usually the first person we talk to. We are pulling in the advocate voice. I think one of our biggest challenges when you talk about a diverse population, we go one step further because we deal with individuals that have limited verbal abilities. And so how do you get them to participate in research? How do you ask these individuals how they're feeling today when they have challenges expressing how they're feeling? Um, so, so we have those types of factors that we pull in as well. And, um, but trust really is the biggest one in education and really talking to the families. They are so afraid that their insurance companies are gonna hear about this, that they're gonna lose services or coverage for different things. So um, working up front, getting their input from the ground. So somebody was saying earlier about the protocol design, having your patients and parent caregivers part of that. And you have to be, we, it took us a long time to learn this, but you have to be willing to adapt what you think is the best way to do the study based on what your patients or parent partners are telling you. And so that was a big challenge for our network is to really start to listen to them and hear them and treat them as if they're, they have an equal voice at the table. Not um, So it doesn't matter if they don't have their PhD, you know, they have an equal voice. But um, pulling in autism, there's a lot of barriers, obviously, and I think you touched on some too, is transportation, timing, being flexible, which is hard, you know, um, a mom that has two children on the spectrum and dad's working full time and she needs to come get them to the appointment for the clinical trial and the one child's having a tantrum, the bus is running late, now she's trying to deal with two kids, plus she might have a third baby. I mean, you have to take into all of these different factors to really support the family so that they can be present, they can participate, they understand the benefits, and um, they're getting something back in return too. I think somebody touched on that earlier as well. Oh, that's brilliant, that's, that's good to, to learn. And um, so Cal, if you don't mind, if I come to you, um, what are the biggest barriers, I mean, uh, for clinical research? Sure, so I can think of at least four to start with. The first is the physical barrier. And so the physical barrier is that no one has ever entered a clinical trial without giving informed consent. But how about if you can't see the forms? So how am I supposed to give informed consent if I'm blind? Well, you could say, well, someone could read it to you. How about making all the forms accessible? And so in today's world, most people who are blind use computers, and they can use accessible formats on their computer in order to read. But rarely do we ever come upon a clinical trial for which all the materials for informed consent are in an accessible format. So request number one, please make your materials accessible for people who are blind and visually impaired. Second one. Second one is an intellectual barrier. So one of, unfortunately, the side effects of being blind is that you don't get all the same educational opportunities as people who are sighted. And so consequently, while we all know the great examples 
of people who have established and created so much of a professional life while being blind, most people who are blind never finish high school. And so consequently, asking them to understand a lot of the information that's in a clinical trial is more difficult for them as it is for other people with uh, disabilities. Um, the third one has, has to do with, with the fact that while I get calls routinely, could you help us find patients with glaucoma? Could you help us find patients with macular degeneration? Rarely, in fact never, do I ever get a call, gee, we're doing a diabetes study. And we know that blindness is a common side effect of, of diabetes. We're doing a diabetes study. Could you get us some blind people for a diabetes study? No. It's much easier to do your diabetes study without blind people than it is to do your diabetes study with blind people. And so that there is this unintended exclusion of blind people out of studies other than those that are essentially just for eye disease. And the fourth one is what I call my CRO exclusion. So that there are enough blind and visually impaired people that as a CRO, you should be looking for sites that actually can easily take care of people who are blind and visually impaired. Uh, one thing about what we have at Lighthouse Guild in, in New York City is that we have a full medical clinic that's just catering to people who are blind. So we take care of their diabetes. We take care of their general health. Um, just think about it. We all talk about how hard it is to give insulin. Try giving yourself insulin when you can't see. Right? So then we have a special clinic. And we just cater to diabetics who are, who are blind. Come to us with your clinical trials. We'll be happy to take care of people who are blind and visually impaired, of course, for your clinical trials. That's, that's fascinating. I think we'll, we could dive into that a little bit more with, uh, with Angie as well. So, um, um, Perla, from your perspective. So, in case you're wondering what community I'm representing, I'm representing the Latino community. However, I'm not going to end the day singing because I just can't sing. But um, <laughs> some of, I, sorry, I have to always use laughter. I have to laugh at least 15 minutes a day. But um, so some of the barriers that my community faces, uh, one of the big ones for me is when I speak to different groups who tell me that studies are offered in Spanish. They have everything translated to Spanish so that uh, patients or participants that are only Spanish speaking can participate. Um, my follow-up question is always, do you have bilingual staff? And most of the time they'll say, no, we don't, but we can get an interpreter, at which point I say, stop. That is not how we're going to proceed, I said, because we're trying to build trust, like you said, Angie, with this community, and we're going to bring an interpreter in. Well, you know, a lot is lost in translation, so um, that's not the way to do it. So a, a, a visit that should take an hour is probably going to take two hours, and you know, some conversations can be uncomfortable and you have to tell the stranger, it's just not gonna work. 
So please don't offer the study in Spanish if you don't have bilingual staff. Second of all, um, I think, you know, offering studies after hours, like thinking outside the box, right? Um, before eight o'clock in the morning, I know it's early, but maybe, you know, you could figure it out with your staff where the, if they come in early, they leave early, whatever, you know, just make it work, right? Um, having weekend hours, evening hours, um, because a lot of people can't leave their jobs in the middle of the day to go and enroll in a study. That's just our reality. Um, the other thing is the social security number to get compensated. Um, many times we have participants that fit the eligibility criteria for studies, but they can't enroll because they have to give a social security number to get compensated. So, you know, you why don't you waive compensation? That's not, you know, ideally we want people to get compensated. But what if they're willing to waive that compensation? Why can't they enroll in a study? Because they don't want to give you their social security number, right? So we just have to work with the communities and make it work for them because they're volunteering to be in our studies. So let's ask them, let's listen to what they're saying. Um, and that's all I'm going to say for now. Thank you very much, Perla. I think we should you should try and sing a little bit towards the end of this. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, so, Tina, from your perspective, um, obviously doing a lot of work with, uh, you know, the South Asian community and amazing work that you're doing. But what are the biggest challenges for access to clinical trials? Um, that's a great question. But before we kick off with that, I just want to, you know, highlight um, how much uh, Val and Kate and Ash have done to bring such a diverse panel up here um, to really represent so many um, diversity stories um, and uh, disability inclusion. I think it's very important to make sure we take note of that. And the reason why I say this is I've often been asked um, to represent other communities, including the African-American community, and I'm like, wait, we're not all like racial and ethnic communities are not all one people we have different needs and you're hearing the different needs and the different challenges and barriers for various communities so that's one thing now going back to your question ash um i think the number one challenge that i've been coming across um has really been trying to get funding for my organization south asian ibd alliance and i say this very openly and honestly I have to prove the need for our community. Um, I, I know we are represented well in the medical community in terms of physicians and researchers, but the issue is patients are not represented for my community, and there's a lot of mistrust. And I was alluding to this in my welcome talk with uh, Claire earlier um, regarding how um, we are considered, because we're considered some kind of model minority as Asian Americans in general, 
we're not considered an underrepresented community. But the reality is there are many disparities. There are many challenges. You will see the grant packets I put together at 20 pages long trying to prove the need for our community, which is exploding with inflammatory bowel diseases. And there is no research or proper understanding of it in the United States. So I'm pulling from other diaspora uh, locations, including the UK and Canada, including uh, Malaysia and, uh, and mainland South Asia to show that this is becoming a real problem in our community that we might have some of the largest numbers of inflammatory bowel disease in the world um, in South Asia and our diaspora. And as I believe Erica and even Sarah were um, talking about earlier, the Asian community is 60% of the world and we have the largest diaspora, yet we are showing um, rates of 3%, 2% in clinical trials. How is this okay? So uh, one of the things that I had to do, and I'm gonna share this very openly, I was at an in innovation challenge recently that we were a runner up for. We didn't even make it to the finalist round because they didn't understand the unmet needs for our community. Um, one of the groups, one of the finalists dropped out so SIA, South Asian IBD Alliance, came into the picture, and we won. How did we win? Because I showcased that there are massive unmet needs in terms of research, that the United States, we do a lot of things well, but we're not breaking out demographics properly. So whether that's Asians broken out into Far East Asians or Southeast or South Asians or Central Asian, however you want to classify this, it needs to be done properly. Same thing with Africa, and same thing as Sarah was saying with the Middle Eastern and North African community being um, allocated and assigned into the Caucasian community. How are we doing justice to various phenotypes of disease if we can't get the categories correct? So our number one priority right now is actually, uh, as SIA is working on a research registry that's hopefully going to become a learning health network, um, and that's what we were able to secure funding for with that innovation challenge, is to try to break out um, the, the South Asian population and hopefully, therefore, um, allow other Asian populations and other po uh, populations living with chronic illnesses to work on the same endeavor and sort of be an inspiration in that regard. We really want to pull out, um, you know, not just by last name. Our retrospective studies right now are being done by last name. But those could be mixed uh, folks. Those could be people just with similar names. So it could be inaccurate data. And I think if we really want to have personalized medicine in the future and really want to address disparities, we need to get the data correct first. So that is something that is a huge priority for us. And I think um, funding is a really big challenge, Ash, just going back to that. And you know, I think we need to understand um, that there are other underrepresented communities that really do need access to clinical trials and proper research. And this is a really big challenge because it's, we cannot get um, the funding to do the research and then we cannot do the research to prove the need for further funding. It, it's this, this vicious cycle that we have to break. And for that, we all need to understand that there's many underrepresented communities that need the help. No, that, that, is, that is fascinating. And I think when it comes to that funding sort of challenge that you're experiencing, if you don't mind talking from your personal experience, 
what are the reasons why you're not getting that funding, if, if you don't mind sharing that? No, I, I think it's because um, folks don't realize that there's certain uh, Asian communities who may need um, better access to care. Or, and I don't want to speak for the Middle Eastern, North African community, but I know Sarah and Sabina, who uh, you'll see in the next couple of days also as a co-chair, um, speak about this as well, is that our communities are underrepresented. We have some really high rates of disease, and there's numerous cultural stigmas in Asian and Middle Eastern communities where we don't talk about our disease state, especially not when you have a disease as stigmatized as inflammatory bowel disease. And what I was saying earlier, Ash, like in the welcoming remarks is, it, the cultural stigma is compounded by uh, mistrust from being a colony of the West, Western medicine coming in and sort of um, pulling away from ancient traditions of uh, tre treating disease. And uh, th there is this underlying mistrust of what is the West bringing us? And do we actually need that? Um, is this just a diet and lifestyle disease? No, this requires medicine. And this is a reframing that we have to do via patient education, via physician education as well. Because the other thing I will say, and I'll say it very openly, we have a lot of physicians in our community, but even in my own family um, and in my husband's family, just seeing the physician not wanting to take medicine themselves because of mistrust, that's a conundrum right there that we need to break through. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think, Tina, what you're doing is is special because I think there is a lot of stigma, uh, speaking someone from Indian heritage, um, that we need to tackle. Um, and I, I, IBD being one of the, one of the mm -hmm. probably the, yeah, the strongest. Um, so, Scout, I'm just going to come to you. And um, a lot of people have talked about, uh, oh, sorry, a lot of people, but on the panel today, have talked about mistrust. Um, what are some of the uh, almost like quick wins that we could really bring to, to, to add a bit more trust. So we're not waiting 20 years for the world to change. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, and as Tina just talked about, data collection is such a key point for so many of the populations that we're talking about here. If we do not have data on our populations, we can never apply for the research studies and be competitive. And if we don't get the research, then we don't end up getting any of the intervention and none of our problems that are out there ever end up being seen enough to be addressed and ultimately fixed. So uh, I think one of the biggest quick wins we can do is it's not complicated to do better data collection on the people that you're engaging in these trials. That is not the biggest part of the trial. That is not the biggest part of the effort by any means. So to do a better job of that in the first place, even understanding if you might have a small population, in many cases for these populations, it's filling a large hole of data. And you know, like in our communities, we work with pinpoints of light. Like here's one data point over here. Here's another one way over here. And we're hoping eventually we get enough that we can actually kind of show the room. But we really are desperately grateful for every one of those little matches in the darkness at this point related to data collection. Um, another thing I think we can do as an easy win related to this is, is we, we have a set of best practices that we advise people on related to engaging with the queer communities, and they really apply to a lot of populations too. But the first overarching point there is do a better job of not just tolerating, but valuing and valuing the expertise of your internal employee base who comes from these populations. 
So it, you know, not just, first of all, address whether or not we are welcome in your organizations. And then beyond being welcome, are we valued for the additional community expertise we bring? Are we given time off work in order to participate in subject matter expert bodies, your organization? You obviously are gonna have employees from all of these different groups that you want to actually address. And outsiders will never be able to tell you as much about where you're failing as the people who are watching your operations day in and day out. So leverage the value in that employee base. And then beyond that, of course, get those external advisors as well, because if you give them the time, dedicated focus to look at what you're doing, they're gonna be able to give you some really good advice on where you're missing things. So it's just this systematic set of steps around making sure you're looking at things from our perspective and not just from your own perspective. No, that's really good, really good advice, Scout. Thank you very much. Um, at this point, I wanted to come, come back to you, Angie. Um, Let's expand on the barriers that you know people uh, on the spectrum face when it comes to clinical trials. I would imagine informed consent is an issue, but throughout the process, is there is there more that we need to be considering? Yeah, I think that um, I can relate to every single person on this panel because autism is part of every community. So we face all hello, okay, <laughs> and we understand. I think. Um, you know, we I, we really rely on um, something Scout was just saying is really bringing in those that have the expertise. So our parents, for us, are our biggest advocates, and then working with our patients as well that are comfortable as they learn for advocating. And so working with parents or patients, reviewing the consent, does this make sense? Reading level, we do everything at a fourth grade reading level. Having bilingual staff, having community champions present that are in those communities that we're having a hard time reaching. So we might provide a stipend to a parent partner that's in the Somali community in Columbus, Ohio to sit in the waiting room and talk to other families from that community. You know, so really working with them and understanding that, um, Having the ability to do an oral consent in, again, fourth grade language so that that patient can understand you. Having visualizations so that if that person doesn't read or can't understand some of the language visually, that's going to help them. Um, really going through, again, education is so important. Why is this important? What are we going to do? And working with that family along the way. Remember, as important as this research is to you, you can't do it without these people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so their thoughts, their opinions, their being comfortable with participating should be the top priority. And I feel like a lot of times it's not. And so really just working with them, keeping the line of communication open and adapting as you go. And I know in certain things in clinical trials, you have to follow a protocol to, you know, the T, but say you're doing something that um, allows you, it doesn't matter the area that you're working with that child in for that clinical trial. And you might go down to the um, parking lot and do it in the car because the kid's having a meltdown and he can't get, 
mom's not getting him out of the car, so you're coming to them. And so it's really identifying the needs of the families in your community. So what works for one community in New York is not going to work for the other community in Los Angeles. And so really meeting them where they're at and where they're comfortable. Um, informed consent, we do assents, we do proxy consent because we deal with, you know, even if you're a 30-year-old adult, you know, your caregiver may be the one who's... Um, overseeing everything for you, so we have to have a proxy consent. Um, so we work closely with our IRBs, and then again, our patient and parent partners to really make sure what we're putting out there makes sense to all parties involved. Um, and I could go on and on. So. Uh, I, think, I think that's already, well, it's given me a lot of thought, um, so I think I'm sure it will be for the audience as well. Um, I just wanted to expand on the trust um, element with you, Shauna, and then Perla, if we could, how can how can we circumnavigate the trust problem? Oh boy! Um, so this is this is a huge one with the sickle cell disease community specifically um, because this is a I I heard a very amazing practitioner refer to sickle cell disease as a back of the bus disease because it costs a lot of money and it doesn't make a ton of money um, as as other hematologic diseases do and so. Um, because of this, this community is very keen on when they're approached. Um, and, and me being a person who lived with sickle cell disease 30 years before coming into this work, even when I started to approach community-based organizations and other organizations to let them know what we're doing and that, that we're here, they were, you know, looking at me like, okay, girl. You know why you're you know why you're in this position, but once we help you, are you going to come back to us and tell us how this is going to help the broader community? Um, are you going to speak up for us when you are in rooms where when we are not present? Um, and and I really had to to make good on that because you know like they're just they're just like I said they're keenly aware of when they are not going to be represented properly. Um, and so some of the things that we do is um, we make sure to not just come to them and provide them with information about clinical research, provide them in with information about what it is that we're doing. We provide them with tools and training to empower them to be able to not just help us with, with you know our mission of um, progressing clinical research for sickle cell disease, but also providing them with the tools to be able to speak confidently about sickle cell disease in their broader communities. Um, we, we give them um, a lot of training and information about what it means to be an advocate, you know, and, and what it means to, to utilize your voice, um, just specific skills uh, as it relates to, um, for example, one of my responsibilities is to assemble communities at all of the clinical research sites with people who are directly impacted by sickle cell disease and also people in the faith-based um, realm uh, that are adjacent to these communities, people in the educational realm. Anybody who's touching someone with sickle cell disease is invited to be a, a part of these conversations and just sharing responsibilities 
teaching the coordinators at these clinical research sites to pick up on certain skills that these community members have to empower them to enhance those skills so that they can see that this is there's there are many very positive unintended um, consequences or, or, or benefits in being a part of these discussions and so um, this is something that is not an easy walk um, and it's still we're still on this journey and and I'd say that as it relates to uh, to industry partners we've also we've also come across organizations that come to us you know like as if okay I have to get this approved by by the community this is my thing to do I've done that and they don't consider any of the input you know that has been um, that has been given by the community members and ultimately they don't end up meeting their enrollment you know criteria or their retention goals because they were not willing to be amenable to the the advice the input that these people with learned experiences have um, and so there's an organizational trust that um, one has to have when you're when we're when you're working in this realm um, to not be so um, focused on how is this going to make dollars and cents? Um, how is engaging the community going to bring something back um, you know, to this organization? Just trust that it will because the proof of concept is there. Um, and so all of these things, these are different elements of trust that we have to work on, not just um, as, as an advocate, as uh, you know, an organization that's acting as a neutral party to help people that are living with sickle cell disease, but also as industry, as clinicians, you know, as a community, um, trust is a reciprocal thing. Um, so thank you. No, that was fantastic. I think great advice. And um, Perla? Yeah, so how do you build trust, right? Um, you have to look like the people that you're trying to um, get into the studies, but not just, you don't have to look like them, but form uh, relationships, build relationships with key stakeholders, people that are trusted in the communities. Um, when I was at Duke University, uh, we did a community-engaged research, and we worked with a lot of the different um, key stakeholders in the community, you know, uh, free clinics, the FQHCs, the public health departments, um, people who were working with the Hispanic community and could open those doors for us to come in and be able to talk about studies. Um, so just and maintaining that trust, even after the study is done, you know, being a constant in that community, you know, having a presence. Don't just show up in my community and enroll people in a study and then leave, right? You have to maintain a presence um, in those communities. No, that's um, I, yeah. It has to be sustained, otherwise the trust is the trust is lost. I think. Um, so I'm going to slightly change tack a little bit. Um, we got we got Cal here, who has worked within pharmaceutical companies and is obviously now CEO of uh, the Lighthouse Guild. Um, question: You know, a lot of allegations are thrown at, at pharmaceutical companies, whether patient engagement, community engagement is tokenistic or you know, it's checkbox exercise. Now that you've been on both sides, what's, what's your view, if you don't mind me asking? 
Well, I, I spent the, the day today listening to everybody's comments and then trying to think about it from the perspective of a sponsor. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what does a sponsor want? A, sp a sponsor wants a high quality study that's going to have an unusually high retention rate and is going to give high quality data. And so all of the comments that everybody's made all day have really looked to see, okay, how can we make sure that groups are represented and so that they can provide this high quality of data. Now, uh, when you're dealing with a disease such as sickle cell, so there is a very well-defined population of people who have sickle cell disease. But if you're looking at something like IBD, so IBD really crosses across all ethnic racial uh, lines. And so therefore now, now you have to really think much harder that we have to then make sure that, that the data that we have then allows our commercial people to then go and talk to communities and say, this is a, this is a drug that is appropriate for your community because we've tested it on your community. Otherwise, we're putting the commercial folks into a really a bind because they cannot do their job because we in R&D didn't do ours. Okay? So, um, so, I, so I think that, that, that the pharmaceutical companies understand this, but they're always thinking about, am I going to get high quality data from a group of patients who are going to stay in the study. Opens up many questions, and I think we could probably do another session on this. Um, so, yeah. um, so what I would actually like to do, uh, we've got 10, 11 minutes left, is I want to try and leave everyone with something to inspire them to, to take back to their workplace. So are there any innovations or anything interesting that is being done in the industry to engage with different populations. Um, uh, I know Angie you have, but Tina, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, there's a couple of things that I can think of um, off the top of our head. Something that um, we helped work on recently um, for Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, which is March, um, it's, this is something that is associated with inflammatory bowel disease being unchecked and uh, not treated to its fullest extent. Um, we went into uh, 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 senior housing in the South Asian community, um, in New York City specifically, to try to bring more awareness. Um, our community, as, as many communities, unfortunately does not um, believe in going for colonoscopies. There have been no screening requirements um, in mainland South Asia, and there are huge rates of CRC. My father passed away from CRC when he was my age. Um, so this is, uh, this is a really big challenge, and this is something that you know, we are trying to also focus on. Um, another thing that we are working on is um, to host a, a series of cultural competence um, type events, um, a CME program that we're launching as, um, uh, at Digestive Disease Week um, in about five, six weeks in Chicago is um, to basically bring forward the patient perspective, but also um, delivering high quality care 
um, for South Asians, both in the diaspora as well as uh, in, in uh, mainland South Asia living with IBD. This is something that is you know, considered newer in our population, was considered a Western disease for a long time. And so understanding how under, underrepresented it is, what sort of barriers the patients are facing um, to taking biological therapies, which have become a mainstay in IBD and many other conditions, but also the barriers to surgical uptake, um, which could be a lifesaver as it was for me, but also making sure that physicians understand, both South Asian and non-South Asian physicians understand how to treat their growing number of South Asian patients that are facing a number of barriers to uptake of therapy um, is really what we're focusing on. And I think we have to do a lot more education um, a lot more research um, and make sure that that education is really two-pronged, that it's towards patients and caregivers, but also towards physicians to make sure that there's cultural competency. Thank you. Cal, did you, did you want to add to anything? Yeah, no, I just think that, that if there is one thing that I could ask you to, to think about, uh, and that is the mental health aspect of chronic diseases. And that is so that, um, I'll just give you some statistics in my area. Uh, if you think about all the people who are legally blind in this country today, only 5% of them became blind under the age of 21. Another 8% became blind between 21 and 40. 87% of people who are blind today became blind after the age of 40 which means that they grew up with sight, they were educated with sight, and then lost their sight. And as a result, everyone who loses their vision has a mental health component to it. They believe their life is over when they lose their vision. So anxiety and depression are paramount. And so at Lighthouse Guild, uh, we have 12 full-time psychiatrists, psychologists, and clinical social workers who only handle the anxiety and depression associated with, with vision loss. And we could use more. So that as you think about your clinical trials, and you think about how you plan them, and you think about the groups that you're putting in and the disease entities, please keep in mind that chronic diseases have a mental health component. No, I think, um, yeah, that's fascinating. And also, I think a little spoiler alert, I know Valerie has been looking into this as a, as a topic for another, for another event, but I think, um, yeah, it's an area that definitely needs exploration, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, Angie, did you want to add any innovations that you've come across? I'll try to make this quick. Um, we really have improved a lot over the years on how we involve our par parents and patient partners in the work we do. So um, one thing I didn't mention earlier is when I say like compensate families, so if you have a parent partner at the tables, put them on as your research study member. So as you're putting percent time on your grant, put them on percent time on your grant. So they should be a key person on that budget when, you, when you're filling that out. But um, some things we've really started doing that has really changed the engagement with our families is we've invited pharma to the table. So every clinical trial pharmaceutical company that comes to us and wants to explore opportunities to collaborate, we have brought them to our family partners committee and have them present. So they get asked the tough questions because our family partners are our community champions. They're going to be the ones working with the communities to help 
get engagement and explain these studies. Um, so we bring them to the table there. They present to our family partners committee. They get asked a lot of tough questions. And then again, our families are involved in the protocols and all that. The other thing is, um, in addition to that, is really making sure resources are available. So it, like you were saying, it doesn't just stop during the study. It's you want to continue that relationship and provide resources. But interestingly, one of the things we just started doing is surveying families and patients based off of what the clinical trial is intending to achieve to identify if that's even needed today. Is that important? Does the study design work? What's important to you? And the feedback we have received on that has been amazing and it's changed direction with some of our clinical trials. And it also helped with engagement because now they're understanding. So those same people that are filling out these surveys and lending their voice to this design are then wanting to participate. And so that's really been a big shift for us. No, that's, that's really interesting. And I think we could, I, I'd love to explore that as well. Um, can I uh, scout just aware that you're, you're there? Um, do you have anything you would, any innovations or any experiences that you wouldn't mind sharing at this stage? I, I think there's so many organizations right now who are doing, trying to address this issue of being uh, more engaging with the LGBTQI populations. That's very exciting. We've got a major pharma that I'm sure is in the room that has just added data collection across all of their clinical trials. That's very exciting. And also, I think the innovation that I think may show actually a huge amount of promise is that lots of these organizations are actually funding DEI initiatives as part of your DEI commitment. So for example, you know, we've been funded to create an eight-part cultural humility program. But the interesting point is then, is that you're not necessarily taking some of those resources that you're actually building and putting them out because you have a lot of ground troops with all of those reps that are going around the country, right? And I know I just heard last week when I was at another pharma that, you know, the reps are, are reporting that the doctors want to hear about something else other than, you know, the same thing you come back with every month. So I think it's something that could be very promising is if some of the pharmaceuticals actually do a better job of collecting back some of these industry-leading resources around DEI, giving them out to your reps that are out in the street and helping us, the organization representing these underserved populations, to get what we're building as far and as wide across the actual arena, the medical landscape, the trial landscape, the practitioner landscape, as possible. Because again, lots of us are small organizations, but you actually have a lot of staff seeing a lot of providers so if we can kind of work together with the resources we're building, the innovations we're building, the trainings that we are building, sometimes because they're funding, and you help us echo that out, that can really accelerate both ends of this equation. Yeah, I think I think it's it's all about that collaboration. You know, on an island, we can't we can't improve things. So together, I think we can. Um, just conscious of time, that famous saying. So we've got two minutes left, um, and in the spirit of collaboration and engagement, I just want to open up to you guys. If you've got any questions, um, feel free. Oh, 
that on? Hello? Oh, I'm on. Um, hi, everyone. Natasha from Couch Health. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, really great and necessary panel discussion. Um, I just have a question related to the emotional labor of getting involved and patient engagement, particularly um, for communities who, um, yeah, have faced mistrust, um, uh, sorry, misrepresentation mistrust um they've been you know um yeah historically not included um many barriers that that you've all touched upon um so yeah really keen to to just hear from some of the panelists on what is the work that industry needs to do to make us make patient engagement and community engagement a safe space for for people to actually come and and share their experiences i'm gonna answer this real quick they need to listen and stop just checking the box that they did listen. They need to listen and work on that. You have to let leave your ego at the door. Leave it at the door because your patients and parents know more about this than you do. They live with it every single day and they will pick up the second they think you think you know more and you're not valuing what they're saying, you just lost that relationship. Scout, did you want to add anything there? I was just going to say, remember in this whole thing, you're right, it's emotional labor. You're taking something from our communities. So figure out how you're giving back. Are you investing in our organizations? Are you giving your data back in ways that our organizations can use it? But make sure you have built in giving back at the same time you're taking from. All right, thank you. Um, there are quite a few questions. Yeah. Hi, uh, Bray Patrick Lake, uh, FDA Digital Health Center of Excellence. I think this question might be best asked to Scout. I'm wondering on clinical trial screeners and forms, how do you prefer to see gender and sex asked? The NASA report is the best current evidence we have. After doing a lot of this testing myself, I trust in the science. The one thing I would give as a caveat with NASA is their second question related to gender identity should be a check call instead of a check one. And California Health Interview Survey has done next generation cognitive testing past NASM to get even better measures. So that should also be consulted. Thank you. Sorry, a little bit of Thank you, Scout. Hi, Sue Manber from Publicist Health again. Thank you so much for such a great panel. Question for you. We've been talking a lot about the fact that there is no physical health without mental health. And we've been wondering, should we craft a tight mental health battery that could be consistently deployed across different trials, or should it be bespoke to each one? Um, simpler, I think, than the PHQ-21, but what do you all think? I mean, for autism, we're always going to have to tweak something to meet our community's needs. So one size does not fit all for us. I love the idea, and I think that's great. I just know in our community, we would need to tweak it. We don't have, we can't even measure quality of life appropriately in autism. So we have to use um, whatever is out there, and it still doesn't successfully measure that. Yeah, I'll take that one on. There's a bi-directionality between physical health and mental health. And so that your physical health will affect your mental health, but your mental health will affect your physical health. And so the people who are depressed with anxiety, they don't take their medicines, they don't go for their, for their follow-up exams. And so that your point is really well taken because you might wanna know about someone's mental health as how good of a study subject they're gonna be. If they are chronically 
to press, they, they may not be the person who's going to be able to complete the study. I'd also like to like to include that we're we're speaking out, we're talking a lot about that's a very important question. I'm so glad you asked that. I was very fortunate to have not just myself counseled about all of the things that I could p possibly go through in participating in clinical re research, but also my family, my children. Everybody was educated on how to best support me. Um, and that's something that should be tailored toward whatever program or a situation or community that it is that you're serving. I just want to add to that, um, to what Cal was saying earlier about bi bidirectional pathways. There are studies showing bidirectional pathways between inflammatory bowel disease and um, depression, anxiety, and medical trauma. And I do want to emphasize here, um, there is a component around medical post-traumatic stress, um, especially with a condition like mine where you're having surgeries on your bottom, um, in your lady or male parts, and um, I don't mean to get gruesome here, but these, uh, this is honestly something we have to consider with diseases that affect us and affect you know, our entire being and a question, you know, our, our humanity, our worth, if we are not rolling these, um, this, these mental health components and the traumatic components of living with a disease, um, such as mine, in a bespoke way, we're not doing justice to it in a trial. Hi, Andreas Ryman from Atmedicum. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for this great panel. I, I think it just shows uh, how much uh, we need to pay more attention to diversity and what can be done. So congratulations to that. I'm speaking actually for, um, uh, not professionally now, but really in the role as a father for a minority that is often overseen. And these are people with Down syndrome. Tomorrow, by the way, is March 21st, World Down Syndrome Day. I'm a father of a son with, a, with Down syndrome. And I'd like to encourage sponsors, but also clinical researchers, non-for-profit researchers, to think about including people with a, uh, with a uh, particular chromosomal abnormality, for instance, like, like Down syndrome, not for, for under investigating uh, the, uh, the, the, the action of drugs in, in Down syndrome itself, but of the specialties or and the special pharmacokinetics, for instance, uh, people may observe. And I'd like to also this panel to, to advocate for that as well. Thanks very much. No, thank you very much. And I think that is a very relevant point. And I think, um, uh, you know, that's some of the work that we, we are doing in the industry is to, is to elevate different uh, populations. And I think we, we are just at the beginning um, and we will continue. So I just wanted to firstly thank you all for the panel today. I mean, I, for me, it was, it was fascinating. I hope it was for everyone else. Um, and Scout, I hope you get better soon um, and hope to see you back on your treadmill very quickly. Um, <laughs> and everyone else, I, I think, you know, Kate, uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. I do appreciate it. And Valerie, of course. So thank you very much, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information on the Patients as Partners Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit patientsaspartnersconference.com or theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.